Hello and welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's sports car racing podcast. I'm Jonathan Grace, and I'm joined today by Sports Car 365 Editor-in-Chief, John DeGeese. John, you've had a busy couple weeks capped off with the Bathurst 12-hour down in Australia. How was your time on the mountain? It was amazing. Um, another great classic finish to the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour. Um, this year, you know, back in February for the first time since 2020, everything seemed like it was back to normal and um, the mountain did not disappoint at all. Yeah, we've got a great race to talk about and we'll definitely recap it for you on the show today, along with bringing you the news of the week, answering some listener questions and giving you a preview of what's coming up in the world of sports car racing. All that and more on this week's episode of Double Stint. Well, John, let's dive right in. It was the Liquamali Bathurst 12 hour, uh, and what a race it was. The return of the pro class, the longest race in Bathurst history. We had a huge stint at the end of uninterrupted green running. It was just a fantastic finish. We had uh, Mercedes teammates that were competing in the WeatherTech car run by Proton at Daytona that were competing against each other for the win, ended up being Jules Gunan who came out on top. But what an exciting finish. Yeah, it, you really couldn't have predicted the finish at all and and looking at like the final three hours of the race and um cars on different strategies trying to maximize driver stint time and 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 whatnot it ultimately came down to the sun energy one racing mercedes of jules gunan and the number triple nine uh, group m racing mercedes of maro engel engel's car had the lead for the majority of the race I, they started on pole he had a a blisteringly fast um, uh, time in in the top ten shootout, breaking a, a new qualifying lap record around Man- Mount Panorama, um, and, and sort of was the the car to beat throughout most of the race. However, um, on their final pit stop, they had to replace the mandatory data logger on the Mercedes AMG GT3 Evo. Uh, the car was not transmitting the data to the race officials. Um, they suspected it was a modem issue. And um, they ultimately replaced both the data logger and the modem during the pit stop. It was located in the passenger side door um, compartment and um, ultimately cost them around 10 seconds in the pit lane um, by doing that. And ultimately, that put the Sun Energy 1 Mercedes, which was on an alternate strategy through almost the entire race. They made more pit stops than anybody else. Um, Kenny Hubble, the bronze-rated driver who had won the race last year with Jules and Lucas Stoltz and Martin Conrad, ultimately um, decided to enter the pro class. Um, There was a bit of a loophole in the regulations that allowed Kenny to only complete a minimum drive time of around 40 minutes. Um, There was no minimum time for a bronze-rated driver, but there was a maximum time for his two co-drivers. And so um, that sort of put things out of the loop a little bit in terms of the team's pit stop sequences and strategy. We saw the Sun Energy 1 car out front for a good amount of the race, sort of bouncing back and forth between them and the triple nine just because of the pit stop sequences. But um, it all came down to the final stop and uh, group M looked to be out front until they had to make that um, change with, with the, with the data logger and modem. And that dropped them behind um, Jules Gunan, who actually double stinted his tires at the, at the finish. And so he was a little bit slower and um, those two were sort of fighting back and forth with, I think, 50 or 51 minutes to go and um, heading into one of the final corners following the chase um, into the little left-right complex. Morrow got alongside Jules. The two made contact. Jules spun into the grass. Morrow continued and ultimately got a drive-through penalty for that contact. And um and Jules continued, um, held out into the lead just ahead of the number 912 Manthai EMA Porsche. 
of Matt Campbell and 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 took the win over the Porsche. It was an incredible finish. Um, you always have to say there's always great conclusions to Bathurst, and a lot of them are are decided when it comes down to late race yellows, uh, much like U.S. racing is. But like you said, Jonathan, this race had. I think close to a five hour stretch to the checkered flag without a safety car. And all of this was done, you know, in a, in a true form, it wasn't artificially uh, added. And, and I, I think it really brought a lot of drama and a lot of excitement to the record crowd that was on the mountain to, to witness this. You mentioned that long stint of green flag running at the end. It, it helped to complete 2,000 kilometers of, of total race distance. That's about 1,242 miles, good for 323 laps, the longest that we've ever seen on the mountain. Uh, just an incredible finish. And like you said, to have it come down that close, Matt Campbell was charging. Even Maro Engel was back in the mix. Uh, you know, the top three cars, less than a second and a half together at the line. Uh, a deserving win for Jules Gounon, who drove a very controlled race and, you know, managing the car after the contact. But it, it seemed, too, that, you know, Jules Gounon and Maro Engel, very amicable after the race. Neither of them seemed to really be placing any blame. It seemed very friendly. They were just happy to be uh, competing against one another so hard after being teammates just a week ago in Daytona. Yeah, it was clear that Maro was um, upset. He was disappointed. But I think he sort of understood what happened. Um, ultimately, I think the anger toward the anger from the anger or frustration from the Group M team was more towards the race officials for forcing him to change that data logger and and modem on the final pit stop because had it happened earlier in the race, we believe this that the the issue came about on the car late in the running in the, in the race, so maybe there wasn't a chance in an earlier pit stop. But um, had that happened in say two hour with two hours to go, they might have been able to make up that time. And and would have been gotten out ahead of of the seventy five Sun Energy One car on the final pit stop. So, um, you know, it was ultimately an issue that was completely out of their control that set up for this drama that led to the penalty. Because if 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 that if they didn't have to make that longer stop, then most likely there would have been no contact on on track. So you got a feel for them, especially Maro. Um, he was the star of the weekend, um, setting those uh, blisteringly quick times in qualifying and, and in the top 10 shootout. Um, he was still been searching for his elusive first win at Mount Panorama. And um, yet again, it, it sort of comes up short. And, um, you know, even in the post-race press conference, you know, Maro said he respected the decision for the penalty, but when asked by another reporter, he if if he felt that the penalty was fair, he said no comment. Um, you know, you, you have to sort of understand, you know, the situation there for sure. And I think I don't think any driver wants to be penalized or or would agree to be penalized. Um, but on the other side of the the, the token, Kenny Hobble was saying that he wasn't actually frustrated when his car was spinning through the gravel, um, through the grass with with Jules at the wheel. You know, he said he, you know, all all six of those drivers between the Sun Energy One crew and and the Group M crew, they've all been sort of interchanged as as drivers through the years, um, particularly with um, Sun Energy One with Raffaele Marciello, um, Mikel Grenier. Um, those are some of Kenny Hubble's regular drivers as well when they, they go go to other races around the world. So um, there's a real strong friendship and and bond between these Mercedes AMG factory drivers and. Um, just seeing how it all unfolded, it was a bit surreal because, you know, usually people would be kind of upset and, and, 
and dejected. It was more of a feeling, I think, of a bit of a awkward feeling just because of how it ended that way. I don't think there was any people upset at each other per se, but it was just unfortunate circumstances that that led to that that contact. But um, I, I think Kenny said it best: if the roles were reversed, he would have wanted his team to do the same thing, you know, to, to push all the way to the end and and try to make a move and 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 really ultimately go for the win and that's what Morrow was doing so you can't discredit him for that at all that's a very good point it was just you know two hard-nosed racing drivers going over the same piece of tarmac late in the race two drivers who, who know each other and their styles very well either way it produced an incredible finish like you said Morrow Engel still hunting down that first win on the mountain Jules Guna now a three-time winner and he's done it back to back to back uh, that means he's the first ever driver to win a race on the mountain three times in the Bathurst 12-hour. It's been done in other categories in Australia, but the first to do it in the Bathurst 12-hour race. Mercedes also now ties Audi for three wins on the mountain. We'll run you through some of the other categories quickly before moving on in the show. In Pro-Am, it was the number 65 sports bet team MPC Audi of Chaz Mostert, Fraser Ross, and Liam Talbot, who took victory in class, seventh overall. They benefited from the 777 car, who was leading in Pro-Am, uh, having a longer-than-normal brake pad change very late in the race. The Silver Class saw the number 10 Milan Team IMS car take victory, a dominant six-lap win over their nearest competitor. And in the Invitational Class, it was the number 111 racing MRA Motorsport Mazda who took victory there. As always, you can read all about the weekend's racing action in Dan Lloyd's weekly racing roundup on sportscar365.com. Well, John, let's dive into the news of the week, and let's start with Lamborghini. They have announced that they'll have single-car entries, both in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and the World Endurance Championship for the debut of their LMDH car next season. Uh, they'll run in WEC and the Michelin Endurance Cup with plans to expand to two cars for next year's 24 Hours of Le Mans uh, and potentially two cars at the 2025 Rolex 24. But the big news is single cars on either side of the pond for next season. Yeah, this was something that we were hearing in, in recent weeks, and um, our Dan Lloyd got confirmation from Giorgio Sana during the Rolex 24 weekend in that um, Lamborghini is definitely going to have a more measured approach um, for its first season of LMDH competition on both sides of the pond. Um, this is kind of an odd situation because you look at manufacturers running um, LMDH cars or, fact or factory-backed operations. This, mind you, this is not a full factory effort. This is a uh, partnership with Lamborghini and Iron Links, so it, it's funded partially by Iron Links, or, or or the majority is really actually more by Iron Links. So I think that's what precipitated part of this strategy. But um, nonetheless, it, it will be one car for the full World Endurance Championship season and then one for the Michelin Endurance Cup races, likely starting at Sebring. Um, it's, it's, it's probably unclear at, at this point that the car will be ready for the Rolex 24. Um, we'll have to wait and see. I don't think it's been completely ruled out at this time. Um, but like you said, Jonathan, um, the idea is to put a second entry request in for the 24 hours of Loma, which we would hope that the ACO selection committee will would grant and then um, potentially have more cars in 2025. So that's the good news. Um, I, I think it's a, a smart idea to sort of build up slowly. Yeah, it, it, it's probably not ideal from a team standpoint to only have one car competing. Um, we saw that the differences between single car teams and and multi car teams at at Daytona, for instance, um, 
both Porsche Penske Motorsport and BMW M Team RLL had multiple cars, and one of their cars each had significant setbacks with hybrid issues. And the other car was able to sort of fly the flag um, for the majority of the race. Um, it, it, with, with in the case of Penske, until they had their own issues with the six car, but um, nonetheless, I, I think um, you know we'll. It's not a bad thing. It's great to see Lamborghini on the grid, and and we should um, look forward to their uh, potential expanded presence for maybe a full season program in twenty five. If they're able to put together two cars um, for one of the two championships heading into the second year of the program. And speaking of newer programs, Garage Fifty Six is ramping up their endurance testing ahead of Le Mans, the heavily modified next-gen Chevy Camaro ZL1 Cup car uh, that we're used to seeing on on the NASCAR track is going to take on the Circuit de la Sarthe. They had done a, a test post Rolex Twenty Four at Daytona for two days, and we understand that they're going to be aiming to do a longer run test at Sebring coming up shortly that could potentially be a full twenty four hours. Yeah, the the first. Um, test at Daytona just after the Rolex 24. We saw Jensen Button get behind the wheel for the first time. Um, Jordan Taylor, who's, quote, the driver coach um, for um, Button, Mike Rockefeller, and Jimmy Johnson was there as well. He got his first laps of, of the car, um, and it was quite uh, a, a monumental moment because the car was actually fitted with headlights for the first time, functional headlights, instead of um, the stickers, that the decals that show up on the, on the NASCAR cars. So, um, they got to work through some nighttime running at, at Daytona. Next bit major test, um, I believe, like you said, is Sebring. I, I, I think it's actually before the twelve hour, and um, they'll be um, working through through th- that car as well. Um, more and more information being gleaned, and um, it's it's quite a an effort. Um, there was there was a, a big media briefing during the uh, Rolex 24 weekend where they announced the driver lineup and, and we got some more information on how the program's going. And um, certainly there's been a huge amount of effort put in from all parties to, to, to build this car and make it race ready for Loma. Um, it's our understanding. There's actually a lot of road racing parts from sports car, from GT racing outfitted on this car um, similar to like gt3 specification parts um, can't really go into too many details because we are not really uh, fully aware of what has been modified to what extent but um, this this car is certainly going to be able to compete um, you know well it's not going to compete against anybody at Lama as garage 56 but lap time wise it's probably not going to be far off of what we see the gt um, the GTE AM runners, it'll be a little bit slower, but um, pace wise, I, I think it's going to be in, in the ballparks, which is going to make it quite exciting to, to see. Um, again, this is all making sure that this is all subject to the ACO granting them an entry for Garage 56. We expect that to happen. Um, but previously, there were some conditions for a Garage 56 entry um, in that it must be an innovative car. And based on our knowledge, it doesn't sound like this is going to be a hybrid-powered NASCAR as originally intended or originally uh, suggested. Um, I remember speaking to ACO President Pierre Fion during the program announcement in March, and he said it will be a hybrid-powered car. We've asked a question to, to folks at GM and and um, Hendrick Motorsports, and, and they said this is not the time to announce anything, but 
based on what we've heard, at least right now, there's no hybrid system in the car. So um, let's wait and see um, that. I, I think if the ACO rejects it, it, it right now, it'll be a, a huge upset and issue. So I'm fully expecting to see this car compete at Loma, but um, maybe it wasn't re- originally in the configuration that was perceived to be um, at least back when the program was announced, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see on all that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think either way, there's a ton of excitement around it. I think from the sports car racing camp, from the NASCAR camp, I think just from fans of motorsport in general to see something uh, this radical and to this degree. I mean, to, to take a NASCAR cup car and, and run it at Le Mans, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's it's an awesome idea. I, I'm glad they're doing it. Um, all the testing footage looks super exciting. So it's one of those cars that you can't help but root for. Alpine has confirmed its LMP2 lineup during its transition season uh, ahead of its hypercar program. It'll be running two Orica 07 Gibsons badged as Alpine A460s, though, and this is an interesting one. Uh, the two cars will be number 35 and number 36. The 36 will have Matthew Vexivier, Charles Milesi, and Julian Canal, and in the 35, Andre Negrau, Ollie Caldwell, and Memo Rojas. Yeah, a pretty good lineup for this this team as like you said they're transitioning prior to the the build and debut of the Alpine LMDH car that'll be coming out in line with a, a planned two car operation in the World Endurance Championship in 2024. Um, we've known Alpine, you know, running in the hypercar class the last few years with its um, X um, Rebellion Orica chassis um, uh, LMP1 car. But um, that car was no longer eligible this year amid the introduction of the LMDH platform. So um, they're going back to keep the team active, um, running two cars, which it sounds like it's a a ramping up. But technically, um, um, Signatech, the operators of the program, they had run the Richard Mill Racing Orica um, in the WEC, and that program is now defunct. So they're going to be using those resources to run these two, run the second car. Um, I think it's of note that Nico Lapierre, who's been a longtime Alpine driver, he's not part of this lineup, but it's understood that he will be um, focusing his efforts more on the development of the LMDH car um, this year and also his duties in uh, as a team principal at Cool Racing. So um, I would think by 24, we would fully expect Nico to be part of the Alpine LMDH lineup, but this is kind of um, opening the doors for some other drivers, like you mentioned, Jonathan, to to sort of um, race this year and and see if they could end up being part of the factory squad um, when when the manufacturer steps up to top class um, prototype competition with a modern day car for the first time. Absolutely, and we mentioned the fact that it's a transition season. It's a transition season for the drivers, but also for the team. This is just as much for the crew members to stay sharp and and keep everyone intact uh, until they do get back to top level prototype racing. But either way, it's it's great to see Alpine continuing in some capacity. Dieter Gass has been named the Jota team principal for their hypercar program. They'll be running a single Porsche 963 in the hypercar class in the World Endurance Championship, and they've appointed the former head of Audi Motorsport to run the operation. Yeah, this is a really smart move, and I think it actually shows how serious this team is taking things um, by having a dedicated team principal for its hypercar class program. This is something you would see out of a factory squad, for instance, um, in, in having a, a, a team boss um, that runs the program. You know, Joda has been highly successful all these years um, in, in LMP2. They have really capable um, top management um, led by Sam Hignett and David Clark. And, and um, just by bringing in somebody external, 
to the program as you would in a Formula One program, as you would in a World Endurance or a World Rally or a Formula E. Um, this this shows how how they're really taking this program and and with the real clear minded goal of of going for overall victories and champ and potentially the championship. That obviously won't happen in year one because they're going to be missing at least the first I think three rounds of the championship. The way it looks like with the the delivery schedule of the Porsche 963, but um, nonetheless, they're really building the foundation for the future um, uh, of this operation. They haven't hit, hidden the the desires to have a second Porsche 963 by 2024. Um, in my conversations with um, Thomas Laudenbach, the head of Porsche Motorsport, um, he indicated that there could be a possibility for a, additional customer cars um, by next year. I think Jodas will be right at the top of the list for that. So um, this could be a real force to be reckoned with, um, you know, especially for the 2024 season, um, getting a lot of experience in the the hopefully Loma and then the second half of the WEC season this year and having somebody like Dieter um, run this program who has so much factory experience in, in running programs um, Audi's various programs through the years, um, from the LMP1 to uh, DTM to um, uh, to other uh, forms of, of factory motorsport. When he was in control, I, I think he came on board as head of um, Audi Motorsport just at the end of the the program um, before it, it fell up, before it sort of went away, um, succeeding uh, Dr. Wolfgang Ulrich. But um, nonetheless. Um, still a, a really great hire for for Hertz Team Joda, as it's now going to be known in the top class. We'll throw some other quick headlines at you before moving on in the show. We'll start with this. The Ford Mustang GT3 will begin testing this month on track. Uh, we understand that it'll be using two cars, one of which testing in North America and one in Europe. And the priority for the team, as we understand, is to have factory cars in IMSA, but it will have customer cars both in North America and in Europe uh, for its 2024 debut. Daniel Kvyat and Mirko Bordelotti join Prema's LMP2 lineup in the World Endurance Championship. They'll be driving alongside the previously announced Dorian Pin in the number 63 entry as part of Prema's expanded two-car effort in WEC. Proton Competition will support Iron Lynx's Porsche-based GTE effort. They'll run a single 911 RSR19 in the final year of GTE competition before GT3 cars take over, during which time they'll be running the Lamborghini Huracan GT3 Evo 2s when they become eligible in 2024. As always, you can read up on all the headlines we've covered on today's show and more on sportscar365.com. Well, John, let's dive into answering some listener questions, and we've got a couple good ones here. He Who Knows asks, the level of mechanical problems on the GTP cars at Daytona was quite disturbing. Is it reasonable to expect that many of these issues will be fixed by Sebring, or should we get used to races of attrition? And this is an interesting one, because I think, actually, the lack of attrition surprised a lot of people. I know that with any new car, especially with hybrids and cars that hadn't run together before in a race setting, there's bound to be issues, and some of them were major issues. I think one of the more concerning ones was the the MGU failure for BMW, given that that's a common spec part for all the LMDH cars. But again, I think the lack of attrition certainly impressed me, although I know all of the teams are still ironing out kinks. Yeah, I I wouldn't say I was extremely disturbed or concerned about the reliability issues at Daytona. I think we were all expecting it to be considerably worse um, based on on how the cars were were testing in in the build up to the Rolex 24. So I I would have to think that um, 
you know, yeah, there's always new pro- problems with new cars, and it doesn't matter if it's a hybrid system or or, or not. Um, you look at the first race of of DPI back in in the day, and there there were cars that had issues, and and I remember an LMP2 car finished on the overall podium there back when they were balanced together. Okay, so to give some fair credit, but um, nonetheless, I I, I think um, these issues will get better the more race mileage teams have under their belt. Um, Sebring, I'm not expecting things to be significantly better at Sebring just because uh, Sebring is really, really tough on the cars and it may bring out even more problems. But, um, for me, I, I think we saw a, a sufficient amount of, of cars with trouble free that ran trouble free. And, um, certainly, you know, over time, these cars will get better reliability wise, but, um, I, I personally didn't no, there was no red flags at all from from my end, and it was actually kind of the opposite. At least that was my personal thought. What about yours, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I, I think we all expected there to be more cars out of the race with mechanical problems, and you know, obviously the Porsche Penske engine failure at the end, and, and BMW's issues, and everybody, you know, w- was kind of managing little things throughout the race. Uh, even Acura, the 60 car won with a with a major gearbox issue, but. I think overall, the GTP class was very impressive in, in that it held together. The cars mostly finished the race. I don't think anybody really expected to have that many GTP cars finish the race uh, by the end of the 24 hours. So I think in, in that regard, it, it was a big win. Gregory Tolson asks, what is the likely chance the endurance round at in Indianapolis will incorporate the WEC in 2024 or 2025? Do you potentially see GTP or maybe GTD classes running in a joint race with WEC? And this is interesting, especially kind of in our, our pre-Sebring conversations here, because we know that the World Endurance Championship is kind of questioning the Sebring format. We know that Qatar is coming in as the opening round, so how could that push things around? Uh, the World Endurance Championship has made it clear that they want to continue racing in the U.S., but we don't exactly know 100% what that'll look like. So Indianapolis could potentially be a solution. Yeah, it could be. Um the the sense that there's two ways to look at this um one could we have another double header event where you would have two races on the weekend one a wbc one an IMS, a weather tech championship or two could there be any kind of potential to combine those grids and run a single race um we saw that combination back in the in the first ever wbc race at sebring in 2012 and quite frankly, that didn't really work very well. I think there were 12, 12 or 13 podiums, um, huge amount of cars on track. Um, a place like Indianapolis could perhaps accommodate a large grid. But I I personally don't see how you can have every class from both championships combined. It would probably have to take some sacrifice where you'd have to pick and choose the top categories. And then how do you figure out the BOP? How do you figure out, you know, because IMSA is going to have a different BOP system than WEC. It goes on and on and on. As much as I personally would like to see something like that, because I I think it would be a really cool thing to see a combined race between the hypercar and GTP classes. I I just don't see how it could be feasibly feasibly done right now, um, given the differences you know, there, we're in a converged world, yeah, but there are still differences in electronics. There's differences in in wind tunnel verification um, uh, processes between the two championships and 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 things like that. So um, I would think that's unlikely. The so that sort of goes back to it running a combined rate, a combined event, 
similar to Super Sebring. But then you'd still run into the same problems that the ACO are stating that they have at Sebring now with various sponsors, sponsorship conflicts, um, other things that are causing friction at, at times. So I don't know how to fix this situation. I don't know what the ideal solution would be for WEC in North America other than them going on their own for a standalone event somewhere else. Um, Indianapolis could be an option. And ironically, we could end up with three major endurance races at the Brickyard in the foreseeable future um, because the IMSA is planning to have a, a long-distance endurance race beginning in 2024 that'll be part of the Michelin Endurance Cup um, with the WeatherTech Championship. If the Indianapolis 8-Hour continues uh, with Intercontinental GT Challenge and Fanatech GT World Challenge America, um, that could be the second one. And then all of a sudden, could there be a third one with WEC? I guess it's possible. Indianapolis seems like the most logical alternative venue other than Sebring. I know Road Atlanta has been mentioned as well as a, as a possibility for WEC to hold a standalone race. Um, that might make it a little more exciting there and 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 um, spice things up a little bit just because quite frankly, I don't know if I could take in three endurance races at Indy, even though the venue is spectacular and full of history and all of that. Uh, I'm personally not a huge fan of the layout of the track, um, the road course, um, especially the layout that the sports cars use, but, um, uh, whatever, this is all speculation right now. We don't have any definitive confirmation of or direction of where this is all heading i, I think we should know more after this year's super Sebring event um, i don't think we're going to be getting any kind of definitive answer during the event unless they end up renewing their deal for 2024 at sebring um you know but yeah it, it's a really good question and I, I think it's something that's on a lot of people's minds right now Oh, absolutely. I, I'm for one, I'm very curious to see what they come up with. Uh, you know, as a fan of the sport in America, and as someone who covers the sport in America, I, of course, want to see the World Endurance Championship race here, however they can. We had a couple questions via Twitter as well with the hashtag AskDoubleStint. First, Johnny Hawksworth1 has a post-Daytona question. Should the GTD results make IMSA rethink the criteria between the GTD Pro Class and AM Class? Perhaps AM needs to have more strict bronze rating mandates in 2024 onwards. And this actually ties into Alan Garcia's question as well, also on Twitter. Is GTD qualifying faster than GTD Pro in Daytona an issue for the GTD Pro Class? I think these questions go very much hand in hand. Uh, I think this was kind of the original intention was to, was to have GTD be able to mix it up with GTD Pro. The idea of equal machinery with the drivers being the only thing to separate. Eventually, you're going to have some of the regular GTD cars running in front of the pro cars. We've seen this a couple of times, sometimes in different ways. In Petit Le Mans, we saw it as a result of kind of a, an interesting wave by uh, in Daytona. It was just on pure pace. Yeah, and, and I was a big proponent of this formula when it first was launched last year and in that everything stays equal and, and it'd be cool to see gtd cars with gtd pro but after seeing this for a few races it does sort of raise some more questions and has actually made me rethink this a little bit because it's great to see the the top level gtd drivers you know the, the co-drivers for the bronze or silvers you know finish the race and and be in contention um but it does sort of make things a bit confusing and um you know, and no, no disrespect to teams like Heart of Racing that have been able to capitalize on this and have finished ahead of the GTD Pro winners. But, um, 
maybe it's time for for IMSA to look at other ways of of implementing the two different categories, or maybe think about migrating it to one category with two podiums, one for pro, one for am. And and while you're doing that, you might as well make am a bronze mandate like they originally had planned for this year, but then reversed um, the that decision at the very last minute. So yeah, it, it's it's certainly an interesting one. The one thing I I wouldn't agree with is changing the BOP between the two categories. I, I think it's important to keep both classes or one class or whatever it ends up being, you know, on the same BOP. So that way, you know, the manufacturers don't have a, it doesn't turn into where one car could have a, uh, an advantage over another model over the same model in the, between the two classes. So um, I think that's right. And I think IMSA should hold firm on that, but um, looking at maybe ways of separating the classes could be maybe through pit stops, um, longer pit stops for the GTD cars, um, through the uh, refueling times. Um, that could be an easy thing that's, that could be done. Um, there's there's other methods as well. Drive time requirements, maybe um, requiring the silvers to, to complete longer periods of the race, the bronze or silvers. Um or just going to a bronze mandate. And I, I think the other thing is you're not going to be seeing this close racing at every single race this year. The endurance races allow for this because you get the minimum drive time out of the way earlier for the bronze and silvers. And um, teams have sort of learned how to take advantage of that. And um, so heading into a race like like Long Beach or at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, I, I, I think we'll most likely be seeing the GTD Pro cars out front and 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 ahead of the GTD finishers. But um, if you look back at the history, you know, uh, of this formula, it's really been the the Michelin Endurance Cup races that we've seen the two classes intermingled the most. So um, still not trying to. I'm not defending that, um, and it's working to IMSA's plan. It's just I think it may be a bit confusing for fans out there and just trying to think of ways to simplify the sport just like your uh, sports car 101 series jonathan that's gotten a lot of acclaim um sort of understanding the sport in a little bit of an easier way i think an easier way um could also be creating a more distinguished separation between these classes or perhaps just going into a single gtd class and and maybe making two separate podiums like i said absolutely and uh yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. I, I think after watching a, a couple races with this formula and, and the full season, uh, I think there is a, a lot to be said for a pro class with the best GT drivers in the world in a complete lineup with, with just the pros being given the chance to showcase and, and do their thing and, and show why they're the best in the world. I think there, there's a lot to be said for that. And I agree that I think the the format is interesting and in, in giving the GTD cars a chance to finish in front of the GTD pros, but I agree. It, it might be time to kind of rethink this a little bit. And lastly, in the question section here, we'll actually go back to a previous question from Pass on the Outside that we talked about while we were at Daytona dealing with phase competition. Uh, and John, you have an update here. Yeah. Um, believe it or not, I actually ran into uh, one of the team principals um, of phase at, at Daytona and, and didn't have a huge amount of time to talk to him. But he said there would be more news coming. They were waiting on, on delivery of, of their second car. Um, things were running a little further behind. But um, we got official news um, this past week that phase intends to be on the grid at Sebring from the second round of the Michelin Pilot Challenge. 
uh, with at least one of its Mercedes AMG GT4s. Um, they're going to be testing, I think, this coming week for the first time with the, its first car that it got delivered. The second car should come later this month. And um, they're at the point where they're still looking for some funded drivers, I believe, to to get the program 100% on, off, the, off the ground. But um, working real hard on that. And um, yeah, fingers crossed we should see him at Sebring. Um, if everything goes to plan and and most likely for the rest of the pilot challenge season. As always, we appreciate you writing in your questions and we love answering them on the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on Double Stint, be sure to post it in the comment section below this episode or take to Twitter and post your question there using the hashtag AskDoubleStint and we'll put our heads together to answer it in an upcoming episode. Let's give you a preview of what's coming up in the world of sports car racing. The Asian Le Mans Series is at the Dubai Autodrome to kick off their season. Uh, And that's really the the major one on the docket this week, John. Yeah, it's a kickoff again of the Asian Le Mans Series, a very compressed season with two races at the Dubai Autodrome, um, followed in the following week by two races at Yas Marina. Um, A huge grid of cars, nearly 50 on the entry list. Um, I think by the time we're publishing this, the full list with drivers should be released. And um, lots to look forward to with this two-week competition in the Middle East. Hopefully, it's the final one in this format. Um, we, we believe that um, the championship should be returning to Southeast Asia in 2024, um, potentially still having a Middle East component as well. But um, let's wait and see what develops with that, with SRO Motorsports Group um, taking over partially of the a part, part of the management along with um, – uh, the ACO and and folks behind the 24 hours of Lamar. So um, yeah, let's uh, a good season ahead and um, looking forward to following all the action this, this weekend on sports car 365. Well, that's it for us this week on the podcast. If you have the time, we'd greatly appreciate a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps out the show. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you're tuning in from. For John DeGeese, I'm Jonathan Grace. We'll see you right back here next week for another edition of Double Stint.